Welcome to the Curiosity Key Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Wyman, and I'm a B2B business development strategist, LinkedIn trainer, and curious thinking advocate. So what is curious thinking? Well, I believe that when you approach your business and your career by being a little bit more curious about what's going on around you, you'll enjoy what you're doing more, engage more with others, learn more, and be able to do more. It's not just about asking more questions either. It's about asking the right questions that will unlock all of the potential opportunities around you. And this podcast aims to help you learn from other curious thinkers out there about how you can grow your business, get your idea off the ground, pioneer change and more. This week's guest is Javed Katak, a serial entrepreneur and one of the most driven and curious people I've met. Javed shares my passion for using business as a force for good, and in addition to founding businesses with the goal of explosive growth, he also ensures that there's a strong social purpose that runs through everything he does. With a vast amount of experience working with large corporations, huge budgets, and really going big with investment, as well as starting completely from scratch and bootstrapping, Javed has a wealth of experience and insights to share with you in this podcast. So if you're just starting out and looking for investment, or if you've been in the game for a while now, you'll be sure to pick up some great tips and insights in this episode. So if you're listening on the go, don't panic about taking notes as I've summarized all of the key points from this interview, which will be available in the show notes on my website, charliewyman.com forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Curiosity Key podcast where I'm joined with Javed Katak. So welcome Javed, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you here on the podcast. Thank you very much Charlie, uh, pleased to be here and very excited in terms of the work you're doing and um, uh, hopefully we can you know, kind of explore something uh, interesting today. Absolutely. Really excited because you have such a fascinating background and skill set. Uh, and also, I think, you know, being an, another curious being like myself, uh, there's a lot of value that we can give to our listeners and a lot of different things that we can cover. So I just want to give you this opportunity to really introduce yourself um, and your background in a nutshell. <laughs> so, you know, you've got, a, you know, a vast amount of experience over the, uh, over the years. Uh, so just distill that in, in a little intro. Um, absolutely. Um, that is always a bit of a challenge for me, I think, because I tend to talk a lot uh, rather than my experience. But anyway, I'll try. So the name's Javid. Um, I originally started in, you know, kind of very corporate uh, environment. It's a FTSE 100 large household brands. Uh, as an actuary, so I'm a qualified actuary as well, fellow of the Institute, Institute of Actuaries, um, and worked for some of the largest organizations uh, like GlaxoSmithKline, HSBC, Thomson Reuters, PwC, and so on. Um, initially uh, as an actuary, then went into management consulting for a few years. Uh, fantastic experiences, but I always felt like I wanted to do a bit uh, something of my own something that, you know, kind of uh, where I belong, creating value and so on. So about three, four years ago, uh, I, you know, kind of stepped into a little bit in the startup and SME space, very different world. Um, uh, initially, I joined a company called Humanic, which was a blockchain-based uh, financial inclusion uh, project. Uh, they raised $5 million in an ICO. Uh, at the time, it was one of the earliest and one of the biggest ICOs. Uh, and uh, I've always been a bit of a, you know, kind of technology geek at heart. So uh, financial inclusion, giving back to society, very, very uh, close to me, very close to my house. So that and technology, when they, you know, kind of overlap, um, that is a, uh, for me, I think a match made in heaven. So that opportunity, when it came about, um, uh, it, 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 for me, was a no brainer to you know, kind of jump uh, ship, so to speak. Uh, and my previous corporate career uh, so far, you know, I'm, I'm happy with that decision. So was there for about a year and then since then have moved on to other projects, other things, which includes uh, a property crowdfunding platform of my own uh, that I founded with my brother. It's called Zis Properties. Uh, we've just launched it in the UK after two years uh, long pilot in Pakistan. Um, alongside, I'm also working for another blockchain based uh, technology company called Studium. Uh, and uh, creating my own software house and so on. So I'm, I'm involved in quite a few different things at the moment. Um, very different kind of world compared to the, uh, I don't know, six billion pound funds that I used to manage 
versus you know kind of startups where some of these startups are uh, you know kind of just ideas and and being uh, developed from scratch. So I think hopefully that's me in a nutshell. Oh, brilliant. And definitely a man after my own heart, technology and giving back to society and just helping make the world a better place. Um, we need more people like yourself uh, doing these things. So you, you. you speak a lot about blockchain technology and there are so many different definitions as to what blockchain is. There's a lot of misconceptions in the industry. So again, in a nutshell, what is blockchain technology? So I think... Um, Blockchain technology, in simplest words, um, I would say is essentially sort of a database of different records. It can store essentially anything. Um, but the way the technology works is stored on many computers uh, simultaneously. Uh, and that makes it immutable or uh, sort of hack proof in a way. Um, and obviously I can go into more detail in terms of how the technology works and there are many different types of, you know, kind of blockchains or more appropriately called distributed ledger technologies. Um, but it is something very different to, uh, you know, kind of Bitcoin, one of, one of, one of, you know, kind of key misconceptions. Um, and I generally see the technology as a key enabler. I think it could really massively disrupt. Um, but at the same time, I think the technology, while it has matured a lot over the past you know, few years, I think there's still some way to go. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes absolute perfect sense. So just, you, you know, leading into those common misconceptions, because, you know, if I speak to people about blockchain, uh, there's still a lot I don't know about the technology, but most people I speak to always associate blockchain and Bitcoin, but that's not always the case. So what other misconceptions are there in the industry about blockchain technology? Um, so I think, first off, the Bitcoin and blockchain misconception, I think obviously there's a lot that has been done online to try and educate people that Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency or some people, you know, kind of define it as a crypto asset. Um, that is uh, obviously the assets value is dependent upon, you know, kind of market forces, demand and supply. Um, blockchain or distributed ledger technology or DLTs for short, uh, that is essentially the technology or cryptographic technology that was uh, devised, you know, kind of to be able to um, execute the vision of Bitcoin. So they're two different things. Blockchain or DLTs can be used for cryptocurrencies or other crypto assets. Uh, they can be something like Bitcoin, where essentially the value is, uh, you know, kind of more based on demand and supply rather than a physical asset. At the same time, uh, DLTs can be used to uh, record uh, physical assets and convert them into you know, fractional assets or crypto assets and so on. Um, and at, at the same time, like I said, it's, it's a database. So you could record uh, anything on it, IDs, uh, you know, kind of data births, um, transactional records of any kinds of transactions, property, you know, purchases, sales, etc. Um, so I think one key thing to just remember is Bitcoin is a uh, particular use case of DLT, a particular blockchain, essentially. Yeah, I think that that describes it absolutely brilliantly and leads me on to my next point, which is because you've, you've already answered that a little bit, which is around how um, how you see blockchain being an enabler for financial inclusion, which is something that you spoke about before. Um, so in terms of like, you know, how how is this an enabler for making the world a better place and giving people an access to something that they wouldn't normally be able to access? Absolutely. So I think... Um like different generations of technology, you know, internet, back in the day, I don't know, television, you know, radio, um, the light bulb. So, you know, kind of, it just keeps on um, improving life in different ways, facilitating things that were, uh, you know, not possible previously, providing solutions and so on. So the way I see, you know, kind of blockchain technology, it essentially um, allows us to uh, provide um, efficiency, um, reduce the number of people and stakeholders involved in any type of a transaction, um, creates trust in a trustless environment. What that means is, in simple words is that generally when you're 
you know, kind of conducting any uh, transaction of value. So there would obviously, you know, go you would require two parties. And when those two parties end up engaging in, in a transaction, there would need to be an element of trust. Sometimes that element of trust is a piece of paper, you know, kind of regulated by, I don't know, the, the laws of England and Wales type of thing. Or it could be a bank or a financial institution in the middle or uh, a broker, a state agent, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what blockchain does or provides the facility through, you know, kind of smart contracts uh, uh, and uh, the immutability and the consensus protocol, again, depends on the blockchain. Um, it allows to create trust between people who do not know each other, which, you know, kind of reduces the need for any external parties to an extent. Um, similarly, like I touched upon earlier, uh, efficiency, microtransactions, allowing through technology um, access to financial services or different types of, you know, kind of services or solutions to areas where previously um, providing access to somebody who's, I don't know, living on $2 or $5 a day somewhere in the world, like, I don't know, Africa. Um, banks or financial institutions would need to set up shop, which means a lot of fixed costs, uh, you know, a lot of regulatory uh, requirements to be met. And for that uh, to be recouped, they need obviously enough uh, customers and uh, that are able to uh, have, you know, kind of sufficient transactions or sufficient value of transactions. But if you're looking at, you know, kind of small patchy uh, neighborhoods, villages, locations, then you see people, we, we, as part of Humanity, we conducted, you know, kind of various researches in Africa, and you would see that people would need to travel hours to, you know, kind of get to the closest bank. Uh, and even on top of that, they wouldn't have, you know, kind of their, their ID documents because it's a bureaucratic system and so on and so forth. So blockchain provides a technology that can be an answer to, you know, kind of all of these issues uh, just, you know, kind of because it uh, provides those um, answers to, you know, kind of those issues that previously weren't possible. Um, but I always like to, you know, kind of remind people that at the end of the day, Blockchain is still um, a technology. It would only become as successful as um, one, how uh, much the technology matures. So you know the 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 issues that are prevalent within the technology they are resolved. Uh, the the blockchain community is very actively you know, kind of working on those. Um, secondly, and uh, I think maybe even more importantly, how the adoption. Uh, how many people are educated on it? Um, and it's not about what is blockchain. It is about how can we use this to improve our lives. Um, and I think the third is the key players and stakeholders, governments, uh, large institutions, etc. Them um, allowing the use or you know kind of adoption of the technology. Because at the end of the day, um, if you're putting in physical assets or providing services, etc., blockchain would only go so far because in the physical world, it's human beings. Um, so we need to interact with blockchain to ultimately, you know, kind of make use of it. So I, I, I hope, you know, kind of that answers the question. Yes. No, it's brilliant. It's really, really, like, I personally find this absolutely fascinating. And the, in one way, selfishly, this is why I set up this podcast, because I'm like, I really want to know more about all of this types of technology, how it's being used in the world. So why don't I just interview people that can come and talk about it and then share that information with everybody else? Fantastic. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's it's brilliant. So how, because, um, you know, it's, it's an emerging technology, it's an enabler, it's a very new market, and there's a lot of um, misconceptions around it. So how are you educating the market and how are you approaching um, the, the challenge of making people aware of the benefits and, and bringing it to market, essentially? Um, so my view has on this been, I think, two-pronged. Uh, I don't know, some people might, may agree, some people may not as uh, is always the case. Um, one is that through digital marketing, social media, uh, seminars, you know, speaking opportunities, whatever may come about, um, try and just help educate people that you know, blockchain is simply a technology. Don't be scared of it. Um, yes, there has been a crypto buzz. People have you know, kind of made, uh, made lots of money, some people, and then there are people who have been burnt as well. Um, there are, because of that, you know, kind of, and rightly so, regulators trying to warn people, but 
it's a very interesting environment, you know, warnings and suddenly people are scared and, you know, uh, other companies just renaming their uh, uh, names to blockchain or something connected to blockchain, even if they have got nothing to do with even technology, let alone, you know, the, the, the uh, DLTs or blockchain itself, just to get a short term, you know, kind of share price rise. So I think one piece is just uh, education, but in simple, simpler words. Um, and the other piece is um, create solutions and services that are um, providing value to the end user, thinking about the issues of the end user, and then focusing on the benefits that they would be getting from that particular solution. Um, so for example, for this properties, we're testing blockchain. Um, now, in the market, I have seen many crowdfunding platforms uh, that essentially don't use blockchain. So they don't have anything to do with, you know, kind of uh, blockchain. They're just, you know, kind of doing the, using the traditional technology to implement or execute this, uh, you know, kind of new prop tech uh, facility or, or solution. But then there, there are so many companies out there um, in the blockchain space that um, within the prop tech space that would just market themselves. Oh, we, you know, kind of, we've got blockchain, we're using blockchain and these are the benefits and, and use us. And there are countless out there. My view is why not just forget about blockchain per se. We, you know, for example, in this properties, we've got a solution. You or anybody else can come and invest into a property from a hundred pounds. And if you do it via blockchain, once it's live, then we would, you know, kind of not focus on uh, maybe somewhere in fine print, etc., or somewhere we might put in, okay, powered by blockchain or this particular blockchain, but focus more on the benefits that, okay, if you do it uh, through this properties, because we use, you know, kind of uh, uh, the, the technology we use, you, your, your records can't be hacked. They're, you know, immutable, blah, blah, blah. And they're efficient. Um, uh, they're quick in terms of cost, you know, kind of we can pass on the benefits to you. So if we, I think, do those two things generally uh, uh, out there within, you know, kind of the blockchain community, uh, educate and create services and then focus on the benefits to the end user, I think hopefully we would, you know, kind of remove those misconceptions. Oh, and I love it because I talk about this all of the time and you've touched on the fact that blockchain is an enabler. Technology in general is an enabler. It has to solve a problem. Otherwise, why would anybody want it? You know, <laughs> you know, but I think both of us have talked about being tech geeks. You know, it's like the new shiny object. You want it because it's new and it's exciting. But generally, it's because it helps you achieve a particular goal or an objective or an outcome. And I think a lot of technology companies fall into the trap of... Um, <clears throat> trying to sell the technology too much and lose focus on the problem that that technology is solving. Um, because otherwise then your, your customers, your prospects and people will completely disengage from that. Absolutely. Correct. What advice would you give somebody else starting completely from scratch based on your, your experiences on both sides of the fence? Um, absolutely. So I think, one key thing that we all read about, we all um, hear about, um, is that people to any business is, is the heart and soul. And I think that when I say people, I, I mean both your um, end users or customers, as well as your team. And the amount of emphasis that we end up putting uh, on a team in any organization, I think is... Um, significantly needs to be significantly more when it's a startup because the amount of resources you've got is already you know kind of uh, there's already a challenge there so um having the right team and the right people i think i found uh, that obviously that was you know kind of that I've, I've i've been used to working with some of the best minds uh in the world and i've been fortunate enough to you know kind of uh, learn from them and groom people and so on and so forth but um, I never knew how challenging it could be to find the right people um, within, you know, kind of the startup and SME space because you've got a limited budget. So you might not be, you know, kind of giving salaries at all. Initially, you might be, you know, kind of offering equity or you might be offering a bit of both. Um, even if you are offering, you know, kind of a bit of a pay or, you know, kind of project based type of a, a role or whatever, um, 
that would also have to be you know, kind of a bit lower end of the spectrum and so on. So that automatically means that um, the wider pool that you've got available, most people I've come to realize are very, very risk averse when it comes to you know, kind of life, paying bills, family responsibilities and so on. Rightly so, absolutely. Uh, um, but I think we underestimate um, how difficult it can be to find the right people. And um, by right people, I, I, the other thing I also realize is that I think one key thing that you need to watch out for, the, the world's becoming a global village. Um, there are, you know, kind of access to uh, other countries very easily, get, get access to people from other uh, you know, countries to provide their services and solutions. Um, brilliant. You uh, at times, you know, kind of uh, find a very good uh, deal or, you know, kind of very good rates, uh, but always be careful. And I think that actually doesn't, doesn't necessarily just apply to um, overseas or offshore type of arrangements. It even applies to, you know, kind of people actually that I worked with within the UK. So um, there are scamsters, scamsters and forcers out there. Be careful. People overpromise and underdeliver. Um, then there are those people as well that actually are good people, want to do hard work, um, but their skill set or their mindset or both are not the right fit. Um, they might be in a kind of nine to five. Okay, I need to do this, and that's it. And if they if if they're of that mindset in a startup, a lot of the times you don't know what where you're going. You know, kind of the next day, you don't want to be reminding people or running or after people or chasing people have you done this or not, and so on. So you want people who are proactive, who are creative, who are, uh, you know, kind of bought into the idea, absolutely bought into the idea. Um, and they're incentivized in the right manner as well. So that as a uh, community, as a family, you can, you know, kind of work on it. Um, and the other thing I learned was, I think these probably are the two biggest lessons for me if you're starting from scratch. Uh, one, make sure that you start with, a small number of people, but quality. Don't go, don't go big. Don't you know? You don't need a large number of people. Uh, I've seen you know, kind of startups with five people, you know, kind of turning around revenues of hundred k or even a million plus. Whilst I've seen other startups with you know fifteen, twenty, twenty five people, and they're you know kind of uh, not even revenue generating or loss making. Um, so, so finding the right people, and then the other flip side is, I. Um, Coming from you know kind of large corporate backgrounds, etc., um, and maybe my father was a bit like that as well, going big, going all out kind of thing. So um, when we started our initial uh, pilot, um, a lot of you know kind of investment just put into it and wanting to go big. Um, I had a very good friend of mine, and he, I was just starting out in the startup world, um, so obviously spoke to you know, kind of various people. Um, and started educating myself, but I think the education was a little bit later than I should have. Um, and I did get that advice at the beginning. Uh, from that, that's the only advice I do remember from that person, that even if you've got the funds, um, do not start big. You know, kind of hold on to your funds, start small, start with a very uh, data-driven approach, very fact-driven approach, uh, you know, kind of develop hypothesis. Um, uh, after that, develop experiments, small experiments, quick experiments, and uh, not perfect, uh, good enough experiments that are cost efficient or cost effective. And based on that, um, keep refining and keep scaling up step by step. And then, you know, once uh, a model or a product or a solution is starting to you know, prove itself, you're uh, getting direct feedback from your customers or end users, um, start putting in the funds at that point in time and, and start grow, you know, kind of growing. So I think those are the two biggest lessons I would you know, kind of pass on to anybody who's starting afresh. Oh, that is brilliant advice. And what I will do is I'm going to re-listen to this podcast and then condense that advice and put that in the show <laughs> notes because everybody will benefit from that. But in terms of uh, recruiting, so, you know, I've, I've had my fair share of recruitment challenges over the years. It's definitely not an easy task um, and a big source of stress whilst trying to do everything else whilst finding the right people. If you could sort of pinpoint three things that help you get the right people into your company, what would those three things be? 
Very good question. Um, a difficult one uh, <laughs> as well. Um, I think one is you, you probably get a, a bit of a gut feel, um, but that comes after experience. So you can't rely on that at the outset. Maybe you're one of those people who are you know, kind of gifted and you can learn people very quickly. Great. Um, I think I've been told I'm not that bad at, you know, kind of reading people. Um, but um, I have, you know, kind of noticed, uh, sorry, I've just got a random pop-up on, um, on my computer. So let me get rid of that. Um, right. So like I was saying that if you're one of those kind of people, um, I think I, I'm not that bad at least. Um, even so, you have to, you know, kind of go more than just with your gut feel. Um, I think first step is the usual, which I think is very common standard process, you know, get the CVs, get, uh, do your due diligence, look at, you know, kind of their, their, their past experience, uh, look at their skill set, and then get on a call with them. Cause uh, we all know CVs versus the actual person yeah, can, can differ. And secondly, um, the skill set might be right, but the chemistry might not be there, or the them, you know, being bought into your vision or idea might not be there, and so on. So I think first step is that, uh, as part of that, make sure that when you're going through the CV, you don't. We've got this ability that when you when you really want something, then you have a te well. I have a tendency that you try to um, hope for the best. Or wish for the best, you know. You you kind of see, okay, this person's got I don't know two years uh, in you know kind of blockchain, but that is Ethereum-based experience, and I'm doing something in Hyperledger. Maybe you can you know kind of quickly skill up. Um, so always, always, whenever you know you 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 um, catch yourself doing that, then make sure you bring yourself back to grounding and um, realize that you will be taking a risk. As long as it's a calculated risk and you've got backups, it's fine. But otherwise, try and avoid those risks. So I think that's one, you know, kind of doing your due diligence. Um, secondly, um, get in a contract in place. Again, very transparent, very, you know, kind of uh, uh, at the outset that if you're joining, um, the contract has to be done in a way that if um, you work whatever number of hours, you know, part-time, full-time, whatever, uh, equity-based or not, in particular for equity, um, that the vesting happens after a certain you know, kind of period, probation period or whatever, three months, six months, a year. Um, so if that person leaves um, before that or poor performance and you need to you know, kind of get rid of them, uh, then you don't you know, kind of get to, uh, you, you aren't required to give away valuable, potentially valuable equity. Um, that way, once you've got them in, you have that time frame to um, test them. And I think that is the most important thing. Connected to that, I, I'd, I'd probably you know, kind of push that out as a, as a separate third item that once you've got the person in, do not, and it would sound very harsh, and I'm coming from very, very difficult experiences on this, do not give a person more than maybe two chances. Um, because I started out, I tried teaching people, tried getting training for them, tried investing time into them. But if they don't have the right mindset, if they don't have the right skills, as a startup, you do not have the time or the resources to train people. You need the right people that can you know, kind of hit the ground running. And if they are not the right people, give them an opportunity. Of course, if they have difficulties, family difficulties, circumstances, I've had somebody who actually, uh, due to family issues, they ended up having to uh, take, you know, kind of a few months off, absolutely not a problem. And then after that, they came back because it was a brilliant resource um, and brilliant team member. Um, so, so that aside, um, if you kind of see that pers a person is not the right fit for any number of reasons, give them one chance, second chance, you know, say adios, next. Um, and I, and I think I can't stress on that enough. Um, it might sound harsh, but think about it in a way that once you're big enough, you can you know, kind of train people, help people. And remember, separate your charitable initiatives and business. You become successful and help, you know, kind of, if you want to do charity, do charity, but don't do charity within your business.
That's great advice. And you also touched a lot about that kind of hope for the best. Uh, you know, I just keep thinking of uh, sort of friends of mine that have had relationships where it's just like, oh, well, I hope that this may change. It's the same in business. And you find yourself doing that. I hope somebody will uh, understand what I mean in this piece of marketing. I hope that somebody really got my point in this sales presentation. Um, and it's a really risky strategy and not always very effective. Um, so yeah, three great pieces of advice there. A couple that I'd love to add to that as well is that because you spoke before about behaviors and motivations especially when you're working for a small company a small startup you need to make sure that the motivations of the individual are there and that the contract and the benefits that you're providing meet their individual motivations um, just as a, a common example that I use all the time is when employing salespeople, not every salesperson is motivated by money you know, uh, there are there are so many salespeople that are motivated by actually enabling change or enabling people to benefit from something. You know, all of the salespeople that work for social enterprises and charities and things like that as well, being a prime example. Um, yeah, a lot of people presume that they automatically understand the motivations of others. So when you understand them and ask them what their motivations are, um, my uh, my common question was, um, so I was like, what's important to you? So if I'm interviewing somebody, I always ask them what's important to you. And then I'm a bit annoying and I'm like, and what else? And what else? And they're sat there going, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Because <laughs> it's so important. And the more you can meet their needs, the better they're going to perform as an employee and as a key part of the team and a key part of the company. So, yeah, it's absolutely, absolutely key and, and brilliant advice that you've given there. And I can't agree more. Um, when I said... Um make sure that the person or the team is the right fit, the right mindset and the right skills. Um, if you're a person that wants to make a difference, you know, kind of uh, uh, through solutions, financial inclusion, whatever, and you're at the outset attracting people who are in it for the money, um, in the short term, that might work. Um, but in the long term, I've seen then massive differences coming about because their motivations are more profit-driven or numbers-driven. Um, and, and it is so... And, and, and again, I think this becomes important at all levels that you have to make sure that you, um, the chemistry is there, the motivations, the goals, why you're doing something is... Um, you, you both can you know, kind of connect on it. So I can't agree more. Absolutely. And this leads perfectly onto my next section because we've spoken about this at length before, which is all around, um, you know, sort of doing business as a force for good and being able to give back. Uh, something I talk a lot about is that you don't need to be turning huge profits. Um, you don't need to be a massive company before you can embed charitable giving or you can embed uh, a giving strategy into your business. So, I talk about this quite a lot. I've got a lot of information on my website about how I do this, but you know, how, from your point of view, can a small startup focus on giving back um, whilst also focusing on the growth of the company? Um, I think that's a very important question um, and completely agree that at the, I think it's all about the mindset. And I think that before coming to, you know, kind of the business world, if I just look at my own example, and I look at um, doing charity. Um, obviously, without going into too much detail, um, if I end up, I find myself, you know, kind of thinking, I want to make a difference. I want to, the next time I see this particular charity or the ones that, you know, I, I tend to try to help and, and so on, I will give X amount. But when it comes to actually giving that amount, at that point, I'm just like, wait, I've got these bills to pay. I've got, you know, that thing coming up and, and so on and so forth. And at that point in time, you're like, whatever you were intending to pay, usually you end up, you know, kind of reducing that. So I've had that experience and I've noticed that, that that's just a mindset. That's probably that, um, I think two things working simultaneously, at least for me. One is that risk of risk averseness, um, that, if I'm, you know, kind of spending money on this right now, I what could I be using this money for other tasks? Um, the other thing is, oh wait, so if I don't use that money for, you know, kind of charity right now, ten pounds, and I put it into the business or something else, then later on I could do a hundred pounds or a thousand pounds because I'd have more money and, and whatever. And I have realized that at a personal level as well as uh, from a business perspective. Um, 
it is better to avoid that because if you keep doing that, the amount of you know benefit you would do in the world would be limited, and we don't know at what point in time um, our life would come to an end. Um, so, so let's try and you know kind of make as much of a difference as we can, small or big, um, you know, kind of till the time we've got um, on this uh, planet. So. Um, from a business perspective, this properties, when we were doing our pilot, um, I think using the example of that would probably portray a, a, um, a real life, you know, kind of scenario where we've tried doing that when it was a pilot, when we didn't have any external you know, kind of resources and funding and so on, and, um, and how simple it is or can be done. Um, so I think first off, if your product is focused on helping people, um, then, or even if it's not, you can always build in, you know, kind of various metrics, various, you know, kind of potential ways of helping people through your business. And I think there's probably two um, categories I can separate, um, at least two categories I can separate, you know, kind of particular types of solution from a charitable perspective. One is the um, organization is a, a fully profit-making business, um, and the product it's, it, it, it sells, um, it hopefully has a positive impact in the world, but it, it doesn't directly I don't know, benefit uh, kind of people. So for example, I don't know, selling uh, luxury cars. Um, so you're a profit-making business and so on, but you could then set aside uh, either directly your profits or you know, kind of uh, get engaged in initiatives where you can do good. Um, whilst the other type of products can be uh, like I was talking about, this property is our, our crowdfunding platform, the idea came about because we wanted to allow and enable people, especially in those parts of the world um, where people needed the most to um, have an opportunity to invest into something they understand and is simple um, from something that is also affordable. Um, so the product itself is focused or, or aimed at helping people. Um, if you've got the first one as a startup, um, I think it would become a little bit difficult to directly, you know, kind of start helping people. But even then, if you have that mindset, um, if I can give £10 today, let's just give that £10, you know, and, and we'll think about the rest later. Um, if you've got the second type, um, I think it becomes a lot more easier because if you just focus on your product um, and if you focus on your end user providing solutions, you will automatically be helping people. So in our example, uh, when we were doing our pilot, we ended up, uh, throughout our pilot, we had about 200 plus type of investors over a period of just under two years um, in one, you know, in the major uh, city in Pakistan, which is Karachi. And within that period, while we had 200 investors, uh, about a third of that was, you know, kind of more high-end type of investors who were doing, you know, kind of well-off and so on. A third of that was people who were, uh, you know, kind of earning good incomes, but not, you know, kind of necessarily or massively in need. And then the bottom third uh, we ended up seeing was the people that ended up, you know, kind of um, were finding it very difficult to make ends meet. So we ended up um, kind of deciding that whilst we're doing this, uh, why not alongside focus on these, you know, kind of uh, third people who are more in need to offer... Um, to create additional offerings as well as edu additional educational fees. Of course, in Pakistan, we didn't have the same FCA, you know, kind of restrictions that we have at the moment in the UK, and hopefully we can, you know, kind of uh, find various solutions to that in due course uh, once we've got scale. But in Pakistan, so we started educating people uh, within that, you know, kind of needs that, okay, getting out, reaching out to them, asking them, what are your needs? What are the problems? And one key thing that we kept hearing was we're trying to save to get on a property ladder. We are renting at the moment, you know, kind of uh, all of that money, you know, kind of essentially goes to waste. Um, and obviously they do not have the understanding or the financial ability to, you know, kind of put down money for a deposit. And uh, in, in, in Pakistan, the mortgage rates are much, you know, the interest rates are much higher uh, for that. And like I said, even if they could afford that, um, the deposit would, you know, kind of make, make it restrictive. And then even if they could afford that, um, their, their, their um, credit scores and, you know, financial credibility and documentation, et cetera, that would not allow them to get on the property matter. So 
um, a lot of them ended up having savings. A lot of them ended up having two or three or four people working uh, in the same family, like two eldest sons and the father working. Um, so we uh, you know, started working with them that, okay, whatever investments or savings you have, you could, if your target is to invest into a property and buy a property, if you invest into a property and the property market even goes down, you're still, as long as you're sufficiently diversified, you're, you know, kind of sufficiently targeting similar type of market, you would still, uh, you know, kind of uh, not face the same amount of risk because property market dips, your investment dips, but the property that you want to buy, that also dips. Um, and, and that's, you know, kind of your protective. So educating them on that. Then um, through our investment calculator that, you know, we've devised and we've put on our website, people can go in and actually look at the power of saving, regular saving. If you're saving, you know, it, in Pakistan, it's rupees here, pounds, uh, I don't know, 500 pounds a month and investing it into something, um, as long as you're not losing capital, that saving itself with a bit of return even could, you know, kind of, uh, be very shocking and surprising to people if you uh, look at you know kind of the numbers in five years time or ten years time. So some of these people ended up having a savings pot plus with regular savings on a monthly basis, um, and us working with them um, and trying to devise a plan for them that if, you know invest in these type of properties, diversify, and f few years down the line you could have a pot where you could you know kind of buy property uh, your own property. And at least in, we, we were, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't want to say lucky, but we ended up getting some fantastic returns um, through our contacts, property development network, experience within the local property market, um, such that at least uh, I know off the top of my head that for uh, about three to five families, we ended up you know, helping them just over this under two year period because they had enough uh, of a savings pot as well, about you know, kind of 40% of the total came from their initial savings. And then over the you know, kind of uh, two-year period, their continuous savings combined with some fantastic returns, I think 20% or 25% um, after our fees over that period in the property market. Yeah. Um, so that, that meant that those families, before we ended the pilot, we, through our contacts within the state agents, uh, you know, kind of network and so on, actually we had even... Uh, you know, kind of opened our own small estate agency practice for this particular uh, reason. And we actually ended up helping them then, uh, you know, kind of sell their investments and buy their own properties. So that's, you know, kind of a way where even though we, we, we didn't have massive funds and so on, our product offering, we just thought about a, a slightly addition to our existing product offering, focusing on a particular need um, and very quickly, you know, kind of helping people. Yeah. And there's so much power in education. You know, it's that kind of, um, you, you can really empower people to be able to do more and then pass, um, pass on that knowledge. And in addition to that as well, the education that you offer, you can get um, additional insights from your market. You can learn more about the questions that they're asking, the challenges that they face whilst you're continually improving your offering. So yeah, education can, it, there's just so many different benefits of educating your market and educating your customers as well. Um Absolutely. A lot of the, because I'm, I'm in the sort of like the first bracket. So what I do is I enable people to sort of sell more, grow their businesses, generate new clients. So it's not necessarily kind of directly helping people from a people in need point of view. So what I do is then I have a kind of business giving strategy where I donate and, and give to projects that focus around education in parts of the world that need it. So um, there's a lot of projects in India that I support empowering women uh, for, you know, giving them entrepreneurial skills or like helping them understand how to grow a business. Um, you know, sort of like getting kids, uh, especially girls into school in Cambodia as well, because then that stops sex trafficking. You know, and it's that like education just has so much power to you know, solve so many of the world's problems anyway, so. Absolutely. Um, so I've got a small education coaching center in Pakistan as well. Um, so, so very close to my heart in terms of, you know, kind of even education. And we have big ambitions, obviously, at the moment, busy in too many things, but maybe going to formal education even. Um, and the focus there is at the moment, you know, kind of certifications and um, tooling, um, providing, you know, kind of education or skills or certifications in areas where, there is a need and a demand, uh, but you don't, you know, kind of find immediate um, 
uh, access to you know kind of uh, education. Um, and I read this famous quote. Uh, one of my um, partners in one of the the businesses I'm involved in uses it often that um, give a man a fish and they will survive for you know kind of one day, but teach a man to you know kind of fish. Um, then you've you know kind of taught them or helped them throughout for their entire life. Yeah, they'll never go hungry again. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, so completely agree. Yeah, I love it. And I've realised that we've been talking for quite a while, so um, I will try and wrap this up as, as quickly as possible. But the last section that I did want to get to, because I know that you've got a lot of experience in this, and I know that this will benefit a lot of our listeners as well, which is all around investment. And, you know, if you're starting a new business, a tech startup, you're starting from scratch, you know, your investment comes from either your own pocket, it comes from the customers that you're putting into. And then the third strand of that is that you go for external investment. So, We've spoken about this um, before. Um, so can you talk a little bit about kind of like when is the right time for a startup that is self-funded to then start going and looking for investment? Absolutely. Um, again, uh, another great question. Um, <coughs> I think for that particular question, um, there are some tips and tricks or, or, you know, kind of some standard things that we uh, as entrepreneurs can think about. But I would like to also highlight that there's no one right answer or one size fits all, of course. Um, but I think what I have noticed is that if you go to, um, so initially you need to, like I said, don't go big, get enough you know, funding, whatever, so it's friends, family, et cetera, um, and test and scale up slowly. Don't you know, kind of put your, yes, there's, a, there's an argument to be had where if you believe in an idea, uh, you know, you really, really, really back it up, but don't, you know, kind of um, put your family or, you know, kind of responsibilities and so on in jeopardy and, and, and be sensible um, to start. But once you've started, you know, kind of uh, started and you've got enough funds and you start testing the idea in a, uh, in a sensible fashion, in a systematic data-driven fashion, um, then focus on the product, focus on the uh, the, the, the solution that you're trying to offer, focus on your end users, trying to get feedback, get in front of them. Um, uh, a lot of people end up thinking that if I have the funds, then this will be successful. I think that's a very uh, wrong way of thinking about a startup. You always need to um, focus on, like I said, um, people yeah, and, and your product. And when you end up doing that, you end up empowering yourself and your team that you know money is while a restriction it isn't a hindrance to success um and with that mindset you can achieve a lot um find creative ways of you know kind of doing things and so on and so forth but once you've got you know kind of sufficient um data behind you sufficient customers it's a repeatable process then you you know you can go to these uh, different forms of uh, uh, investment raising uh, methods to try and scale up. Of course, you know initially you might uh, depends you whether you started with a seed investment or you started even smaller than that. And then you know once you've got the idea proven uh, or semi proven, then you get you know a bit of seed investment. Obviously, depending upon you might uh, have to give a, a big chunk of your uh, equity away at that point in time. Um, and after that, you know, VCs and uh, and different types of funds and so on, angel investors, etc. Um, but I think there is a balance to be had because the suit, if you go too early, um, one, you won't get traction. Nobody would actually you know, want to uh, listen to your pitch and so on because um, I've been on the other side as well. Um, these guys receive, I don't know, tens of, you know, kind of, or hundreds even uh, of emails and pitches every day from startups around the globe. So you need to be different and you need to be proven. And a lot of these startups would be exactly trying to do that. A lot of the, these might be a lot more progress than you. So you need to have something substantial to go to them with. Um, and then secondly, um, if you go too early and if you did find an investor who would bite, they would usually ask for a much bigger uh, chunk of equity because the value they would put on your uh, startup would be a lot smaller. Um, so 
there's a balance to be had, i.e. not going too, you know, kind of early, um, but uh, at the same time, you know, not waiting too late because if, if you're scaling up and, you know, the idea is proven and funds is only the, the only restricting factor, then get on it quickly, scale up quickly because um, it's a very fast moving world out there. Probably whatever you're trying to do, there's 10 or 100 other people doing the same thing. Um, and it's a little bit more about uh, perseverance, determination, and the way you execute. Um, so I personally, yes, there might be you know, um, something to be said around uh, uh, making sure that your idea is protected, but don't end up you know, kind of um, getting bogged down too much about your idea unless it's a, a really novel, I don't know, you know, a cancer breakthrough or something like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, other than that, you know, if you're working on something, most likely there are there's at least one person around the world that is working on the same thing. Is yeah. you know kind of my mindset. So, if you balance that, um, then I think it would be easy enough uh, to you know kind of get investment um, because once you've got a proven product or a solution, then the conversation you end up getting a lot more power in conversations with investors. You'd get a lot more investors interested. Um, Another thing to bear in mind is uh, network. Because um, if you are trying to raise funding, it often people find it very, very difficult to uh, get in front of the right people. Um, so, you know, tap into uh, your LinkedIn profiles and, you know, friends of friends and whatever. Um, there are experts that have access to either family offices or angel investors or just, you know, kind of that, that is what they do. They've got a huge network. They end up usually charging a commission uh, for successful investments. They might have a fixed fee, et cetera. So uh, try and, you know, search for those type of professionals uh, or directly speaking to family offices for, for that matter. Um, and, um, and I think there are also, especially in, you know, kind of uh, cities like London, uh, a lot of events and so on where investors, you know, kind of come about. There might be an investment, um, so you know, for you to set up stall or getting a ticket, etc., you might, you know, kind of have to pay, uh, I don't know, five hundred pounds or a couple of thousand pounds, depending upon the event. Um, don't be afraid to invest into those type of events, but do your due diligence beforehand. Again, don't hope, oh, it's an investor, you know, kind of summit or investor conference or whatever, and I'd get fantastic, you know, kind of response look at actual facts. Um, the people who are trying to sell you the tickets ask difficult questions. You know, mm-hmm. do you have any track record of, uh, you know, kind of previous uh, investors attending? Which type of VCs attend? Which sector is the focus on? How many startups have attended? And do you have any figures around the kind of investment they have received? And, and you know, those kind of things. Um, so I think those are the various, you know, ways, ways to make sure that you actually uh, get in front of the right people. Um, and persevere. Um, you will get in front of probably a hundred people before you know, kind of, you find one person who's like, ah, oh, I, I like that. Mm. Um, and the final piece, I think, from a, for an investment perspective, it's all about um, uh, an important aspect is valuation. Um, different people, different funds, you know, kind of follow different valuation models and methods. Uh, there are some market standards around pre-revenue or post-revenue. Uh, uh, type of uh, valuation models. Some some people, you know, kind of tend to look at uh, discounted cash flow approaches, while other people, you know, kind of look at a multiple based approach, EBITDA multiple, or uh, uh, or, or or gross profit, etc., uh, or net profit, you know, kind of multiple uh, revenue multiples, depending upon your industry. Um, so make sure that whatever your industry is, you do a bit of you know kind of background research to understand what kind of not only the industry, but also the type of people that you're meeting. Because an angel investor um, might be a, a, it might be a much more story-based or a story-driven conversation. Uh, whilst with a VC, it might be a lot more data, numbers, financial models, Excel spreadsheets, uh, you know, kind of discount rates uh, for the cash flow model or projections or whatever. So understand who you're getting in front of. Uh, try to do a bit of background homework in terms of what is important to them um, and then pitch that. You know, your investor pitch deck, your slides, your model, whatever it is, focus on that side of things. For example, um, I have seen myself 
uh, a startup that I, that I was advising. Um, the same startup getting valued at $2 million versus uh, $35 million um, at the same time. Um, one was, you know, kind of an angel investor uh, based out, you know, uh, in UAE, and he was really bought into the vision and the idea and making a difference. Whereas the other was, you know, kind of a, a more European-based uh, fund that specialized in startups. Um, so very different, you know, kind of conversations, very different valuation methodologies and so on. So I hope, you know, kind of those bits and bobs from my experience would help uh, you know, kind of people from the investment perspective within the startup space. It's no, it's absolutely wonderful advice. And again, it's that kind of you know sounding like a, a broken record because if you've listened to many of my podcast episodes or listened to me talk, <laughs> I talk a lot about you know understanding the motivations and the behaviours and the drivers of your target market. And it's the same when you're looking for investment. You know, different investors will have different motivations. You know, some investors will want to um, put their money into uh, more sort of socially driven businesses, businesses that want to give back. Others are more driven by the data, the statistics. Um, and the, their questions will be um, dictated based on their motivations. So the more you can do your homework and research the people that you're actually targeting, the better you will be in terms of putting yourself in front of them. So absolutely, yeah, brilliant advice. And like I said, I will go through this podcast episode um, and write out the show notes so people can, um, you know, th there's a lot that people can gain from listening to this and then taking it away and learning and implementing as well. Um, Fantastic. Because I, I talk about this all the time. It's like, you know, you read books, everybody reads books, they go on courses, they do all of this learning, but all of this learning is futile unless you're actually implementing these things and actually doing what you've learned. Absolutely. I mean, um, that, those are golden words. Absolutely true. If you have education and you don't implement it, no point of that education. If you have a small amount of education, but you're really, you know, kind of implementing it effectively, probably that's more effective than, you know, kind of the first example. Um, and I think another thing is um, discipline. Um, if you have a few minutes to spare and educate yourself and then a few minutes a day to implement something, do it. It's better than not doing it. Um, so, and, and it's, you know, um, uh, in Urdu, we've got a saying, I'm trying to translate that, that um, every, you know, drops actually end up, you know, make the, making an ocean. Um, so it's those small disciplined efforts of implementation that can make a difference. And one you know, kind of other thing to add, and I think every entrepreneur or, or startup uh, you know, kind of founder would probably relate to that, that um, every so often you end up having those days where it's like, you know what, I want to just give up or quit and so on. Um, obviously you have to be, you know, kind of very sensible, i.e. if you've been at something and you have sufficient data, you know, again, going back to that experiments and, and, and fact driven approach that suggests you should, you know, kind of either stop that particular startup or pivot, you know, kind of change lean startup methodology, you know, kind of yeah, pivot and, yeah. and think about something else. Um, that's absolutely fine. But if not, and it's human nature. Um, I think every so often, every few days, it's that you know, kind of feeling that you just want to give up and, and, and so on. And I think um, more often than not, it is people who actually get through that, persevere through that, um, and continue implementing uh, despite you not wanting to, I don't know, get out of bed or wanting to quit, I think are the ones that stand a much higher chance um, of, you know, kind of achieving their, their goals and dreams and visions. Absolutely. And I think it comes back down to network as well. So, you know, your network is not just a place that you can go for advice and guidance, but also your network can challenge you and motivate you and inspire you to keep going even through those hard times. Because as we all know, running a business is never a plain sailing, easy job the whole time. So you do need people to kind of like lift you up and keep you going. <laughs> Absolutely correct. Can't agree more. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on this podcast. You know, we could talk for hours about lots of various different things. And I hope our listeners have gained a huge amount from listening to uh, you speak and listening in on, on your experience. So if somebody wants to get in touch with you or keep in contact, what's the best way of them doing that? So um, 
I am starting to, you know, kind of be a little bit more available online. I've got my own website, uh, javedkatak.com. Um, you could, you know, kind of reach me through there, LinkedIn, Facebook, et cetera, uh, as usual. And uh, obviously, this property is we've got an entire team on, on all my initiatives. So through any of these, you, it's very easy to get a hold of me. Brilliant. And I will include all of these links in the show notes on my website, which is charliewyman.com forward slash podcast. So Javed, it's been an absolute pleasure and I hope to uh, meet you in person again soon. That is fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, it was very um, exciting to be here. And I do really hope that uh, the, uh, your viewers end up actually benefiting in some way or the other. Ah, I'm sure they will. Even if they take away just one thing from this podcast, I'm sure they will. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Cheers. Bye. When you're working on exciting projects in tech or trying to change the world, it's hard to focus on marketing and it might not seem like a big priority for you right now. Talking about what you're working on and the driving force behind why you're doing it will help you raise your profile in your industry and keep your audience up to date and interested. My goal for this podcast is to share the amazing things that businesses and individuals are working on that will shape the world of tomorrow. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform and share it with the others that you think would benefit. If you liked it loads, then feel free to leave me a review. All the show notes and any links mentioned in today's episode will be available on my website. That's charliewyman.com forward slash podcast. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Ciao for now. Bye.